All right, well, we're going to get started. Uh, as you make your way in. We'll start with a word of prayer, and then we will dig into our, our topic this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can be here. We thank you, Lord, that we can look at things, Lord, that are maybe even complicated, but, but have a direct mi uh, bearing on our ministry, even in this church. Pray that you uh, direct my speech and my thoughts and, and our ears and our hearts this morning as we study this topic. We pray in your name. Amen. So lesson three is on the complexity of mental health. And we began this course by charting our, um, our way, and we discussed what mental health is and the attitudes that we needed to develop, namely being humility and, and balance in our study of it. Last week, we looked at the condition through the eyes of someone who is depressed or anxious and tried to understand what kinds of things they experience. We looked at the fact that to be diagnosed with depression, for example, rather than just being described as a depressed person, required a lot of things to be in place for the diagnosis, indicating that this was not in the realm of normal experience. Today, I want to look at the complexity of, of both the individual and the illness. And this should serve, I hope, to, to staunch any quick fixes or simplistic understandings that we may have. In evolutionary apologetics, there exists the idea of irreducible complexity. And that is that biological systems with interacting parts, interacting parts would not function if any one of those parts were removed. That is, a host of complicated parts would have to be developed simultaneously for an organism to function, which is a debunking, I think, of, of evolutionary theory. But likewise, if we reduce an individual and the illness to its parts, or even the sum of the parts, we are left with a concept of the human individual that is not the same as holding all of the parts in hand simultaneously. So let's take a look this morning and start with how we are created. And the first thing I want to note is that we are created body and soul. In Genesis 2-7, it says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And in Genesis 1-31, we, we read that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So the first thing that we see then is that man is intentionally created 
to have a physical body, and it was good. Everything God made, including man, was good. The body was intentional and good. Gnosticism would propound that the soul is good, the body or material nature is bad, and opposes the soul so that we are a soul trapped in a body. That's not the Christian idea of who we are. What we see is that the body was created first for the soul. The body wasn't created in response to the soul, but for the soul. It, it was the, the housing of, of our soul. We are corporal beings. Another way we can see the value of the body in Scripture is when we consider the resurrection of the body. This body that is buried is the body that was raised. Jesus' body was no longer in the tomb, but was raised. And after he rose from the grave, many bodies of the saints who had died were also resurrected and appeared to those who hadn't yet died, we read in Matthew 27. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, 1 to 55, it says the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So it is this body, this body, that will be raised, but be changed to be fit for a new heaven and a new earth. And so in a new heaven and a new earth, we will need bodies that are fit for a new physical existence, even as it is in this world that, will be, that it will be renewed and redeemed. So this world will be renewed, redeemed, it's, and, and it's a physical place that we're looking forward to with physical bodies. And so it's important to see that the body is, Im is really essential to who we are. But in somewhat Gnostic fashion, even we can tend to accept the idea of a soul as being who we really are, and the body as not being all that significant. When it, this, our body is just sort of something we're waiting for it just to, to wear out and be done with it. We don't need it. Like we, we can have that kind of an attitude, even if it's not something we explicitly think about. When it comes to depression and mental health, we need to see that the intangible, intangible thoughts, emotions, have a physical component. The other thing we need to see about how we were created is that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. There has been much discussion as to how we are comprised as human beings. We have just noted that we have a body that 
though changed, will be ours forever. We also have a soul. But what about the idea of a spirit, mind, emotions? Where does our will and our reason come from? There are those who hold to a tripartite view, tri being three, of the human, that we are body, soul, and spirit. The Bible uses these terms, even soul and spirit, in the same verse. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5.23. It says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Luke, 40, Luke 1, I think, 46 or 47, and Mar Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So there we have, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices, making a distinction between the soul and spirit. In Isaiah 26, 9 to 15, it says, My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. So there, these verses seem to be making a possible distinction between the soul and the spirit. The soul, it may seem here, has to do with emotion and affections, while the spirit may have something to do with rationality and volition. There are many who seek to assign other aspects of the person, such as emotions, mental activity, rationality, human will, to either the soul or the spirit. They would say that the spirit is our relational aspect with the spiritual realm, while our soul involves our mind, will, and emotions. And you think, why is he talking about this? Uh, we'll get there in a moment. Just keep that in mind for a sec. There are those who hold to a bipartite view of the human, though, where the spirit and soul are linked as one. They would see these verses we looked at as more poetic, where different words are used to describe the same reality and give them some more weight. For example, Mary's uh, expression may be thought of then as, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God the Savior that it's another aspect of what is happening. The early church fathers in the first three centuries tended to hold a tripartite view of the per person, the early church fathers, but John Calvin held a more bipartite view of the person, but recognized that there are subtle differences between soul and spirit. It would be like there are subtle differences between being upset and being agitated. These can be synonyms, but agitated speaks more of the physical part of being upset. So they're aspects of the same thing. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The spirit and soul are, are so part of the same thing that only the word of God can distinguish between, its between them in its application by the spirit. Now again, why am I talking about these things? Because 
we need to understand how we are made and and if it's only the soul that matters the spirit that matters and if we can separate it out then it will determine our view of mental health and depression that's why but maybe you want to know the big question which one is it and to and and you know this is part of theology part of of um that kind of theology that maybe many, most of us don't ever enter into, it, it's okay. But I would reply to the question, which one is it, with more questions. How is knowing important to your faith and salvation? Do we have to figure this out? Because a lot of energy is spent trying to figure that out. Can we figure it out, or would it require the knowledge of God? And how does the body play into all of this? So perhaps putting our energies into this theological exercise isn't that helpful for, for us where the rubber hits the road. Perhaps it's not helpful or necessary to have it all figured out, but rather what is helpful are the things that we can affirm and conclude. Even if we hold to a bipartite view that the soul and body, uh, soul and spirit are one, and then there's the body, we will soon see that things aren't so simple. It's not so simple. Even that's not simple. In an essay by Paul Helm, entitled Created Body and Soul, which was published in the Gospel Coalition website, he writes, The soul does not have physical parts but consists in faculties such as reason and will and the various emotions. It also has the operations of memory and the conscience. Obviously, we will be able to think and reason when we leave this body, because we can see that in Scripture, and we are present with the Lord. Okay, We're not mindless. Our, our, our brain isn't left behind, and we cease to think and relate that's not the picture so there is an aspect that yes our souls are, are part of that right yet the chemical changes in the body make us feel certain things as they are interpreted in context either rightly or wrongly so if the soul holds the memory and the that sort of non-corporeal stuff then why does a person with Alzheimer's disease who have very physical changes in their brain have their memory affected? You see, it's not simple. As much as we would like to make things simple, it's not simple. Helm notes that many Reformed theologians following Aquinas take the reason to be the central power of the soul, which is present in humans but not animals, they would say. Reasoning. But yet, monkeys will reason through a puzzle in order to get food, even make tools out of nearby objects to get it. So, so it's, not, it's not simple. These are big, big things. Can we separate the body and soul in terms of reason? My mother had very real changes to the frontal cortex in her brain. You could see the changes. 
Her, her brain was affected. Um, and this affected her judgment near the end of her life. She had, her judgment went down. So where's judgment? Right? Are you, are you starting to see that it's not so simple as saying, well, here's the emotions, here's the mind, here's the thoughts, here's the body. It, it's not. So Paul Helm notes in his summary that the body and soul function interdependently and together make up the human person. So to finish his first quote, Helm says, the soul does not have physical parts, but consists in the faculties such as reason, will, the various emotions. It also has the operations of memory and conscience, and we can see this because when we leave this body, we will still have those things. However, he says, in this present life, and that's the point, isn't it? In this present life, the soul is intimately related with the brain, and there is a wonderful and presently little understood interaction and adaption, adaptation between the two. Right? So we can have these theological talks and discussions and, and try to figure it all out. But in this life, we are not separated from our body. And so whatever happens when we leave the body is not the same as what we are experiencing now with the body. And I think he's absolutely right. And I think this is where we as lay Christians and lay theologians, maybe even non-lay theologians, should probably leave it. <laughs> mm -hmm. We are embodied souls. Before we die and are with the Lord, there are irreducibly linked, the irreducible complexity, factors of who we are. You can't separate them. Psalm 139, verse 14 says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So when he's considering the human, he has to almost stop his mouth. It's like, I'm in awe. There should be a natural trembling at God's creation when we think about the human being. And so this is the approach that I am taking in this course when it comes to mental health or any health matter. We need to not be overly simplistic in our understanding of the human person. Separating or bifurcating parts of the person for independent study and treatment as if the problem is located in one part of the person with no bearing or relation to another part. Okay, we, we, we are not going to do that. So then who are we? And in your handout, I have um, some models then of, of how we can think about the human person. The problem that arises in trying to link emotions, thoughts, and will to the spirit or soul or both, as if that's where it's housed, is that mental illness then becomes merely a spiritual problem. Then the answer is clear. 
we need a spiritual solution, period. It is important to note that there is a very real interplay and dependency between the body and the soul. So for our discussion, it is helpful to see that the human being as a network of functional realities. Many people will propose a mind-body-soul or spirit model of the human person, which you see in your handout. Many secular people will acknowledge this model as well. It seems to cover the physical and the two important aspects of the intangible, doesn't it? Some will present this model as facets of a triangle with the three sides, or, or a cube, which in my mathematical mind, I don't know what's on the other side or the top then. They have to list things twice. But I like the circles as it, as it gets at the overlap of the three parts of the person. In a cube, you don't have that. Now you're thinking, okay. You know what? It, it, models break down, don't they? But that's okay. This is helpful in our look at mental health as it identifies the intangible, religious, and physical. But there's another model that I think is helpful when looking at mental health and probably more helpful. And it has more to do with the functional realms of who we are than the components of who we are. It is the mental, emotional, physical, social aspects of who we are, all summed up under the umbrella of the spiritual. So if you look at that more complicated diagram, some things to note. I've sort of come up with this model based on other models and readings that I have done in the area of mental health. And the thing to notice with this model is the spirit from the first model being a separate circle is replaced with the functional, social, and contextual realm. But not because that relates to the spirit as the mind does to the mental health or the body does to the physical. It's that our context is often social or relational. When we look at a mood disorder, such as depression, emotions or mood is affected by mental, physical factors, and these processes have a context. We don't live in a vacuum. It is our context, our context provides the interpretation for the mental and physical things we are experiencing. So in the first model, that, that contextual part is, is assumed. But I think it's important to know that, that what we experience is interpreted by the context we are in. And whatever, again, model we use, it's, nothing's totally perfect. But the spiritual, then, is not one isolated aspect of who we are that overlaps everything but an aspect of who we are that surrounds everything. And, re and it re reflects my understanding that in him we live and move and have our being. That's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? In him we live and move and have our being, Acts 17, 28. This is not to say that hearing or addressing the spiritual 
part of who we are will necessarily fix all of the other realms in the middle, nor that addressing the physical, mental, social will fix the spiritual. It does recognize the fact that there is a distinct spiritual reality that is distinct from who we are, but is an inseparable aspect of everything we are. It's like thinking that we are in Christ, a very spiritual reality, even while Christ exists outside of us. Right? So what's our takeaway from all of this? What, what, what do I want you to see? And it's, it's very much that we are very complicated beings. We are very complicated, who are fearfully and wonderfully made, and which should result in a fear, an awe, and a praise to our Creator. Okay? So, going forward, we're not going to sort of bifurcate or separate out parts to say this is where something is. We're going to deal with the whole person all the way through because we're too complicated to, to do that. And if we do that, we're going to destroy what we're looking at. That's my, that's my um, contention. So that's the complexity of the person. What about the complexity of depression, let's say, because that's what's most common. Let's take a look at depression and get a sense of how this mental illness, as an example, reflects this complexity. We won't get so much into causes and treatments. That will come later. Right now, let's just look at the complexity. Okay? And probably the best way to look at the complexity of depression is to look at the theories that explain how depression works. Instead of looking at the multitude of theories, I have uh, separately, I've grouped them together in terms of their dynamics. Behavioral dynamics, internal, by which I mean deep down dynamics, and then cognitive or mental dynamics. Let's look at the behavioral dynamics. Here the emphasis is on the environment and how the environment shapes our behavior. And these behaviors are learned or repeated or over-repeated access to stimuli in the environment. Classical conditioning theory would say that depression is learned through exposure to things that produce negative emotional states. For example, the child who is repeatedly bullied over time. Social learning theory says that there doesn't even have to be a direct stimulus, but we also learn from how other people react to different things. A central component of the behavioral theories is the idea that losing something positive is a loss of a source of positive reinforcement that may be compensated for in other ways. For example, 
the loss of a job or a loved one, that's the positive reinforcement, being around people that you like and like you, may be replaced by the reinforcement of attention gained through sympathy, getting the sympathy of others. So um, you can't get the positive reinforcement and, and it's sort of been taken away from you, you lost your job, you lost your thing, but you're going to get attention some way. So you're going to start to weep and cry and pr pontificate on your problems and try and get people to feel bad for you, right? Get enforcement, reinforcement that way. But is it that easy that we can say the environment and things that we see and learn to sort of, that we're just sort of reactive animals? Is it that easy? Well, there are many people who enter into, de into depressive episodes for which there is no apparent cause or loss. When I first experienced depression, it was in 1993. I was getting married and was very excited about that fact. I was certainly ready to leave home and was looking forward to starting a life out from under my parents. And at least in my mind, I didn't count that as a loss. I was doing really well in my university course and was a believer who had a real faith in Christ. Things objectively were good. Nevertheless, I, cr I crashed and entered into quite a depression. So it's not that easy. We're not just reactive people. It's not just that there's something that caused us to feel bad necessarily. Well, what about internal kind of deep down dynamics as an explanation for depression? Psychotherapy or psychoanalysis is an approach that was popularized by Sigmund Freud and it has been refined over the years, but one of the consistent ideas in it is that there is some kind of loss that a person has not mourned over properly, but rather has been suppressed. An underlying dynamic of this theory is that there is an underlying anger toward a person or event that is turned inward because that person or event is not accessible to be reconciled with. The anger needs an outlet, but in not finding one, it is turned inward. In order to avoid loss turning into depression, the individual then needs to engage in a period of mourning work during which he recalls memories of the loss, one or lo loss, and comes to accept the event. That's the goal of psychotherapy. Humanistic theories focus on the fact that there is a discrepancy between who the person is and what they want to be. We need to be fulfilled and authentic, and that is not being met in some way. This person is said to not be self-actualized or reaching their potential and, and leading a meaningful life. And this can be because a parent did not give you what you needed as a child, which is very much like psychodynamic theories, and so you've come to see yourself as worthless. It can be because you're pretending to be someone that you're not. Social media is like that, very depressing, because you're pretending to be someone you're not. And, and you're, not, you're not reaching that ideal that you're presenting yourself as being.
or because you're unhappy in a marriage or an unfulfilling job, you know you could be more, but you're not. That's a humanistic theory of depression. And all of this operates at the level of impulse, under the surface, subconsciously, and has more to do with underlying motivations and tensions. When I was growing up, my dad was largely unavailable. He was climbing the work ladder and often didn't have time for me. I often did things with my friends' dads because they seemed to have time. And I was scared of my dad. Really scared. I was scared of him. I was scared of, ups of upsetting him. I had a recurring nightmare that he would be in his office upstairs with a patient. Remember, he was a psychiatrist which was at the top of the stairs, and we were told to be quiet, but for some reason in this nightmare, I had the strong compulsion to scream and run by his office at the top of the stairs. And then I would fall down the stairs, and he would come out as a great big monster ready to devour me. And I had that many times, that nightmare. Same one. So I was really scared of him. And I was told by a psychotherapist, because I, I did go see one back then, that I did not experience the approval from my dad that I needed as a child. Consequently, I became one who always had to please him to prove that I was worthy of his love. And I became a human doing rather than a human being. And the sadness and anger of not having what I needed in a father, I was told, was turned inward, and I saw myself as worthless especially when I made mistakes. Well, I met with my dad. I was part of the therapy. He admitted that this was true. I was like, well, and he genuinely regretted the fact that he wasn't available as a father with tears in his eyes. And he said he would do it all over differently if he could. And I got a great relationship with my dad. And I love him. So didn't there, there, there seems to be a satisfying resolution, right? I, I, I did what I was supposed to do. That, that should be gone. Not only did I have my eyes open to the subconscious dynamics of maybe what was going on, I heard from my father the things that I needed to hear. The depression did not go away. It didn't go away. The psychotherapist was confident that I could go off my medication, but I never could without falling back into deep depression. So again, why do I say that? It's not so simple. Just to show, it's not so simple. Though the dynamics may have been very real, and I'm thankful <laughs> to have gone through. I'm thankful to have done that, regardless whether it helped my depression or not. It was good to do. But that would be the kind of internal dynamics that, that people would get to in trying to think about how depression works. Well, what about the cognitive dynamics? In the mind. This theory rests on the principle that depression results from a systematic negative bias in the thinking process. Emotional, behavioral, and physical symptoms arise from disordered negative thinking which results in a negative view of oneself and one's abilities. Of course, we know and we can see 
that depressed people think differently than others. It's one of the things that marks them out as being depressed. It's very obvious. We can see it. And it's natural to attribute cause to the things that are so predominant and observable and repeated over time, isn't it? Well, that's the cause. Making conclusions on obs observations, in fact, is the basis of the scientific process. You can see it, you can quantify it, you can say that that's the cause of this. The observable thinking, then, that we see in a depressed person is seen as the cause. So thinking precedes mood with this theory. And it is widely accepted that there is some kind of triggering event that drives a person into a cycle of negative thinking and brings out a negative perception of oneself that may not be apparent until it's triggered. And as we looked at a little while ago, even a genetic predisposition probably. The negative thoughts and resulting emotions take on an automaticity then that is difficult to break. Okay. Um, Martin Seligman, way back in the 70s, noted that our perceptions of a negative situation as being internal, stable, and global, that means not really shiftable, are more likely, likely to become depressed than those who attribute failure to external, unstable, or specific causes. And these people, he would say, learn to see themselves as helpless. So how we think about a situation then can affect our move, and he would say then helplessness, being unable to change your circumstances, begets depression. And it makes sense, doesn't it? For a depressed person, it is difficult to break out of cycles of thought. But the question still remains, are the thoughts the cause or a symptom or both? Right? I've been on medication for many years, since 1993, and, and more on medication in a couple of weeks. When I have a depressive episode because my medication seems to stop working, my thoughts change drastically. Well, maybe not like that. I slide, but pretty quickly. Even though my thinking may not have changed, and when I get on a different medication, my thoughts change and my mood lifts, even though I haven't been explicitly working on my thoughts. So again, it's not simple. It's my main message, isn't it? What's going on? So all of these theories have something to offer, but each one of them falls short because they compartmentalize aspects of who we are. The branches of psychology, behavioral, cognitive, neuropsychological, humanistic, are compartmentalizations of who a person is. And any, any psych major, like I was, will tell you that each have something to offer, but nothing can explain everything about who we are in the human experience. 
there are so many things that just don't fit, and that's the way it is, because it compartmentalizes aspects of who we are, and that's the error in having a behavioralist approach to something or a cognitive approach to something. We saw that the, the human's not like that. Depression affects the thoughts, the body, the emotions, underlying impulses, and is a reaction to, and has an effect on, our social context all at the same time, at simultaneously. We never stop being a biological, mental, emotional, or contextual being, even for a moment. Though one aspect may be more dominant at one time than another. Now, to conclude, how do we pull this all together and what is it again that I want us to see? Because I'm not, there's not going to be a test on this. You're, you're not going to have to, even knowing all of these things isn't so real, help really all that important. And then you say, well, why did you waste my hour, half hour trying to go through these things? Because there's something I want you to see, especially people who don't, haven't really thought about who the person is and mental and all these things. There's something we need to see. What we have seen is that we are created to be a mental mind, body, and spirit being. And as a result, we function in mental realms, physical realms, and within a context or a social realm. But because we are spiritual beings, we have a relational aspect to who we are and who seek meaning in our contexts and have the, the spiritual side of who we are that affects everything and permeates everything. In him we live and move and have our being. We are all these things at the very same time. A racing heart, for example, may be interpreted as fear if we are facing a snarling dog. That physical thing could be interpreted as fear if we're facing a snarling dog with all the thoughts of escape and harm that go with it. Or it may be interpreted with excitement if we're on our first date with all the thoughts that go with that. It's the same racing heart, but the context uh, determines the cause, right? When we understand that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that we are complex beings, we will approach discussion about health, especially mental health, as not being merely physical, mental, or social, and that is one of the errors that I think many people make when they think about mental health. It's a spiritual problem. It's a mental problem. It's physical. Um, and, and it comes from ignorance, or, or, or maybe, or, or just a, a lack of appreciation for how complex we are. So any discussion on mental health needs to take this into account. And as we said last time, it should lead us into a non-dogmatic, balanced, 
and humble approach in our care and treatment of mental illness. And that's, that's the point of this lesson. So going forward, wha what I'm hoping to dispel is, and, and you probably knew this already, but it's not simple. It, it, they're not easy fixes. When we're talking about who we are as human beings and mental health, it's, it's complicated. And we want to avoid, especially in the church, relating to people, saying, I got your problem, it's this, let's fix it, carry on. Because you will drive people away if that's your approach to ministry with mental health in the church. Okay. So we just want to recognize how complicated things are. Next week, we will look more specifically at the causes of mental illness. What we know about the things that tend to bring on mental illness, especially depression. And we kind of went long today. It was a lot of heavy stuff, I know, but we're kind of out of time. So uh, if you have questions for today, um, come, and, come and just talk to me. And, uh, and yeah. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I, I thank you for this time and even just even the worship in realizing how you've made us how complicated you've made us surely we are made in your image and with all that that means every human being is and and we are the pinnacle of your creation and lord it's just i just pray that you help us as we think about life and who we are and how we function even as it relates to mental illness that you help us to maintain and appreciate the complexity of what we are dealing with and that that will keep us humble and keep us non-dogmatic and even just in awe we pray this in your name amen